Good morning. We're going to get started. Uh, this uh, program is on the topic, infectious disease update, are the bugs winning the war? So just in case uh, that wasn't the topic you were expecting, uh, feel free to, uh, well, we welcome you to stay. But thanks for coming. I realize you've got a lot of options. Uh, boy, I got sort of tired just walking all across that list. I'm Dan Hassar. I'm a faculty member at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy, have been for a number of years, and it's a special pleasure to see so many young people. You uh, middle-aged folks are certainly a uh, uh, you know, uh, welcome sight also. But uh, for my career, I've been interacting with college students, and uh, that's what I uh, attribute to uh, my uh, at least uh, deluding myself into the f uh, thinking that I'm still young. But anyway, uh, what I'd like to do today as I talk, thought about the topic that might be of interest to you in the presentation, it was a uh, thought that occurred to me was we could just take a, a snapshot, a quick look at a number of infectious diseases that capture our attention. Now, one of the things that we're encountering, and as a pharmacist who is also has an opportunity to write and speak on the topic of new drugs, one of the things we're encountering is that there have not been many new antimicrobial agents marketed in recent years. If you think that's an accident, it's because, or the main reason for that is, that if antimicrobial agents, antibiotics, antituberculars, and so forth, uh, work the way they should or we'd like them to, we'd cure the infection and there would not be a continuing need to use those medications. Now, is that, if you're looking at that from the perspective of the director of research of a pharmaceutical company, um, revenue coming in for years and decades ahead, one of the issues would be, is that going to provide our company with a long-term revenue stream? Well, not if you're only going to use the drug for seven days or ten days, even if you price it pretty high. You know, there are statins that people are going to be taking for the rest of their lives and many other medications, the chronic conditions. The companies look at those as the main revenue producers for their future uh, success financially and otherwise. So there's a real challenge that way, too. Um, there are some seats up front here. I always wanted to talk to a standing room only audience, but, you know, I do have to acknowledge that there are some seats up here. And, uh, you know, or you can sit on the counters and everything else. So, so what we're going to do, and um, I apologize that I don't have enough handouts, but uh, I think most of you have received them. One of the areas of my spe uh, particular interest has uh, been infectious disease over the years. It's a dynamic area. Uh, unfortunately, uh, many of the consequences are tragic, but there is always something happening. And the title of the talk, Are the Bugs Winning the War, is something that we just have to guard against. I guess if there, there is one message, and I certainly don't have to convince this group of the value of it, but as I meet with my pharmacy students and we talk about some of the threats of infectious diseases, wash your hands often. It is remarkable the extent to which we can reduce the transmission of infectious disease by just giving rigorous attention to washing our hands. Uh, I, that thought crossed my mind last night. I was uh, here on Wednesday and Thursday, had to go to a meeting in Orlando yesterday, came back last night, and I'm in the airport, and I'm holding on to that, uh, you know, uh, handle on the moving walkways in the airport, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, you know, how many other people have gone through this before me without that area being uh, cleansed in any sort of way? Anyway, what we're going to do, I've, 
identified what I consider to sort of be a, uh, a list of ten infectious diseases uh, for which I'd just like to provide some perspectives. Not just my perspectives, but one of the things I did in preparation for this was just to uh, review what's in the news just over the last several months. And again, much of the information we'll be discussing is already familiar uh, to you. What I've also done in the handout is to provide some information regarding several of the newest antimicrobial agents that have reached the market in the United States. Just one observation uh, from uh, not a, uh, an impressive medical journal, but uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer, my local newspaper in Philadelphia, are changing microbes. For all the antibacterial products and other weapons in the war against germs, even the cleanest of us still carry about 10 bacterial cells for every human cell. The numbers are remarkable. Now, first infection that I have uh, listed here, MRSA, M-R-S-A, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Ironically, methicillin is no longer used. We have better penicillin derivatives. And, uh, uh, but the concept here, the concern is that MRSA infections caused by strains of Staphylococcus aureus that are resistant to the antibiotics that used to work against Staphylococcus. And just as I was greeting individuals as you were arriving, Ruby Dunlap from Belmont in Nashville, Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, was sharing with me her family's experience with MRSA. And Ruby, um, I'm happy. This mic doesn't, if you have difficulty hearing in the back, let me know. I'm not using the audio mic. This is the recording mic. But uh, if you wouldn't mind just taking a couple of minutes and sharing the oh, experience sure. of your family. Thank you. I am uh, Ruby Dunlap, and I finished a year as a Fulbright Scholar in Uganda, Uganda Christian University this past year returned. I was raised in Somalia as the, uh, a missionary child for almost 10 years, but that was many years ago. My most recent Africa experience was in Uganda. I took my husband, I took my 80-year-old father, and uh, over Christmas time, my daughter and son-in-law visited us. My father was fine, 80 years was fine, but all four of us developed MRSA infections either during or while, soon after returning from Uganda. I think it's because my theory is that any of us who goes to the tropics, our skin, those of us who are Caucasian especially, our skin becomes oilier and we sweat. And so just with the active um, skin glands, it sort of sets you up for an infection. My husband had total body boils with MRSA. In Uganda, you can buy any drug you want without a prescription. I'm a nurse practitioner, so I thought, well, I'm going to fix him. And I went down to the local pharmacy, bought uh, generic Keflex. That he didn't respond to that. We finally took him, and, and uh, the physician said, "Well, let's try oxacillin." He did not respond to that. He finally responded to Bactrim. He had to stay on Bactrim the entire 10 months we were there. My uh, daughter and son-in-law developed uh, MRSA boils after they returned from a Christmas trip to visit us. They, were, they responded to Bactrim, and when I returned in May from Uganda, I developed an infection in a cracked callus on my heel, which cultured out MRSA. I responded to Bactrim, clindamycin, and rifampin, developed an allergy to one of those three, but my MRSA went away. So that's my story. I imagine most of you will have a MRSA story, too. Thank you. Thank you, Ruby. Um, 
not not to scare you right at the beginning here, but uh, when Ruby told me that. Now, MRSA in the hospital environment, where the sickest people reside, where the worst bugs reside, can be a fatal infection. Fortunately, the strains of MRSA that are encountered in the community are still responsive question could be, how long will they continue to be responsive to something like Bactrim? And, and that's, that's the good news. Bactrim, some people are allergic to sulfonamides, though, and uh, that could be an issue. Clindamycin, another old antibiotic, is still very useful for the treatment of MRSA infections, community-acquired MRSA infections. So sometimes we see C-A-M-R-S-A for community-acquired MRSA infections. Now, one of the groups of individuals that are most vulnerable to MRSA infections are athletes. And just recently, new sports policy aims at MRSA. Wrestlers in particular, a friend of mine is a pharmacist who compounds prescriptions, and they've encountered some particularly virulent strains of this, and they're putting some of the newer uh, antibiotics that have a high level of activity against uh, staphylococcal, uh, staphylococcal organisms. Uh, they're compounding uh, dermatologic products that can be applied, at least when the infections are localized. But as Ruby shared with us, you know, it's not always just a localized infection. It can be widespread, indeed, over the entire body. In this particular situation, um, Kyle Fry didn't give much thought to the small pimple on his biceps before his wrestling match in January. But two days later, the Drexel University heavyweight had developed a grapefruit size infection. Doesn't take long for the size of uh, these things to uh, expand. Well, uh, next, cholera. Where? Yes. Good, good idea. Uh, good, good question. And um, uh, the, these are the guidelines from some of the sports authorities. Discourage the sharing of towels, gear, water bottles, air clippers, and razors. Uh, this is you know, main, uh, aimed primarily at athletes. Daily disinfection or laundering of sports equipment and clothing. Frequent hand washing and showering. Encouraging athletes to check the skin daily and report suspicious store, uh, sores. The sooner we can get a handle on, uh, you know, identifying problems, uh, treatment can be initiated so that it can be uh, prevented from getting into a worse uh, situation. Cholera has become uh, just uh, very um, uh, extensively uh, described in the news. Where? Haiti. And this had sort of been anticipated. Uh, what I hadn't realized until recently is that apparently, until recently, there had been no cholera documented in Haiti for more than 50 years. Cholera, gastrointestinal effects, diarrhea, oftentimes even as important as antibiotic therapy, and indeed a case could be made for saying more important than antibiotic therapy, are efforts to restore hydration because the profuse diarrhea, the dehydrate, the 
uh, dehydration that can occur is often the killer for individuals who experience cholera. Now, this has um, some implications that go beyond the infection. The, one of the theories for how individuals are now experiencing cholera in Haiti uh, what they did, they isolated the microorganism, they cultured it, they determined that this particular strain of the organism known, the bacteria known as Vibrio cholera, is not like any of the strains of this bacterium that have been seen in the Caribbean or Haiti in recent years. Indeed, as they looked at the characteristics of this strain of Vibrio cholera, they identified identified it as being of a type that is primarily seen in South Asia. Now, how is this appearing in Haiti? One of the theories is that some of the peacekeeping forces in Haiti from Nepal may be the individuals who brought the microorganism to Haiti um, Sanitation in many areas of Haiti is sadly lacking. The organism gets in the gut, is transmitted via the feces that can get into the water supplies, and uh, one step leads to another. Hundreds, indeed now into the thousands of individuals in Haiti, are threatened with infection cholera. Now, as far as treatment is concerned, hydration, restoring fluids. Relative to antibiotic therapy, doxycycline, one of the old tetracycline derivatives, still is pretty effective, but for some individuals, it's not really the antibiotic therapy that is the most urgent uh, consideration for treatment. I was uh, interested in one of the commentaries that uh, has appeared on this, uh, and, and uh, this, this is uh, certainly international uh, uh, news and of concern. But um, anyway, uh, there was a commentary by one of the uh, CNN uh, reporters. And it's ironic that uh, just as, uh, I, I, well, I guess this is life uh, apart, but this individual wrote a commentary about a young mother who experienced cholera, was seen at a hospital. It was thought that she was recovering but she had a relapse and died, leaving a young child as an orphan. And he wrote that, and it's interesting because it was on a commentary that individuals can contribute into a, a blog-type arrangement. Just a couple of the responses, and just to see how sympathetic and unsympathetic some of the responses are. Sad, sad story. My heart goes out to all those who have lost their lives and are still ill. God bless little Sherry, the orphan. I hope a loving home is found for her and the other children stricken with this tragedy. Sad that people suffer, but at the same time, this country will never, ever change. It's corruption. Where did all the money go that they were given when the earthquake hit? Nothing has been done, but their top government people are not affected or even face this problem. Isn't it interesting? moves quickly from the sympathy factor to the political. Uh, regardless of corruption, that doesn't mean stop trying. Um, what money are you talking about? The money that they are waiting on the outcome of the elections in Haiti uh, to give the newly organized government. American Red Cross has raised more than $460 million, but how much of that money went to help Haiti? You be the investigator. 
So now we add a, detec- a detective theme to, you know, where did the money go? Why isn't it down there? Uh, here's somebody. You need an editor. This piece needs work. <laughs> and a response to that. You were also in desperate need of an editor. Um, Another one, your unsupported, childish little rant is obviously incapable of being enlightened. That's your problem, not this blog. And on and on and on. But, you know, moving from a concern about the infection to, uh, you know, all sorts of political, financial, emotional issues. Hooping cough. Wow, we thought we could forget about hooping cough. We all got those immunizations, right? When we were little kids, they called it pertussis, but, you know, that's uh, just another designation for whooping cough. And uh, all of a sudden, a lot of cases, not in the developing countries necessarily, right here in the United States, starring California, which likes to think it's the leader in just about everything, but uh, I guess they can make that claim to the number of cases of whooping cough reported. Well, what we've come to learn is that probably those immunizations that we received as children don't necessarily provide lifetime protection. And under the appropriate circumstances, uh, that organism could be virulent enough to uh, cause this whooping cough infection. Again, there are just uh, a number of examples that have been described. Um, uh, Ten infants in California have died since the first of the year in an outbreak. Many Americans think of it as a disease of the past, but nearly 6,000 cases in California. Carter, just five years old, developed a low-grade fever one day and was unusually fussy but didn't show any other obvious symptoms. She called the family, her mother called the family's pediatrician and told her it was probably nothing serious but had her bring him in that same day to be sure. At the office, the doctor became concerned about the baby's rapid breathing, five weeks old, and called an ambulance to take him to a hospital. Things only got worse at the hospital over the following days as Carter's eyes rolled around. He grew weak and irritable and refused to eat. His heart started racing, but his blood pressure was puzzlingly low. He was coughing so hard that it would make his feet come up into the air. It hurt and made him cry, which made him cough more. When the infant could not catch his breath and turn blue, he was rushed to the pediatric intensive care unit and given a high concentration of oxygen. The test hadn't come back yet, but doctors believed he had pertussis, whooping cough, and aggressively treated him with antibiotics and sedatives. He wasn't responding to anything. Um, This little boy, five weeks old, died as a consequence of complications of whooping cough. Um, Again, whooping cough is usually treatable with antibiotics that are commonly available. My uh, cousin's daughter-in-law, very busy, demanding schedule, experienced whooping cough and was treated with an antibiotic that effectively managed the whooping cough. But as a consequence of using the antibiotic, she developed antibiotic-associated colitis caused by Clostridium difficile. The drugs of choice, and that's the next organism, the next type of infection we have on the outline, antibiotic-associated diarrhea or colitis. Clostridium difficile is um, one of the challenges uh, commonly associated with the antibiotic use. It sort of changes the flora of everything else in the gut. 
Clostridium difficile is not susceptible to most antibiotics. Indeed, there are only two, metronidazole and vancomycin, that are considered for treatment of Clostridium difficile uh, diarrhea and colitis. And anyway, what we, uh, she was treated with each of those antibiotics and uh, seemed to work. But when the course of treatment was over, a few days after that, she had a relapse of the infection. Finally had to uh, be treated with another antibiotic that is not commonly used, but fortunately in her situation, it worked. So here we have a situation. Healthy young woman um, experiencing, somehow exposed to uh, uh, a bordetella pertussis, the organism causing whooping cough. She experienced that infection, fortunately quickly treated. But the treatment was the source of her next complication, the Clostridium difficile-associated colitis. Tuberculosis caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis. So far, the organisms causing these infections are bacterial organisms. We're going to talk about some viruses and also about uh, some parasitic organisms. I wish I could tell you that there has been significant progress in the treatment of tuberculosis. We've gone a number of years since the last new anti-tubercular drug was approved and marketed. So the treatment continues to be fairly standard. One of the huge challenges in the treatment of tuberculosis is convincing the individuals of the importance of continuing their medication because treatment typically will consist of six months, nine months, a year of treatment with multiple medications. We would never treat an active tuberculosis infection with just one anti-tubercular drug. It would be two, three, or four, sometimes four agents to start off, cutting back to three after a period of time in that course of treatment. It remains one of the major threats, and typically we talk about co-infections in many developing countries in which individuals who already have AIDS, malaria, uh, also hepatitis C, sometimes. Uh, tuberculosis is another one of those groups of infections that are oftentimes uh, experienced uh, in conjunction with each other. There are some studies that suggest that there are some investigational antibiotics, uh, uh, some of them in the class of fluoroquinolones. When they mention fluoroquinolones, think Cipro, uh, Leviquin, in that class. And some of these agents appear to have even greater activity against mycobacterium tuberculosis. Some of the macrolid antibiotics, when I use that term, azithromycin, zithromax, clarithromycin, uh, biaxin, are some of the names by which those macrolid antibiotics are designated. Lyme disease. In my part of the country, in uh, Pennsylvania, Lyme disease is huge. And this infection initially, well, first of all, Lyme, L-Y-M-E, is named after the small town in Connecticut called Lyme in which the early cases of this condition were recognized. But it was not initially recognized that it was an infectious disease. In fact, the symptoms that were most often seen were arthritic-type symptoms to the point that this was initially called Lyme arthritis. It was like a detective story, how they eventually identified how this infection was being transmitted via the bite of a tick. And that tick carried a spirochete, a form of a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi. And that's the agent that causes Lyme disease. 
Now, Lyme disease has been referred to as the great imposter or the great pretender because the symptoms, the manifestations, they start out dermatologic. And a bullseye rash can be an early indicator. In fact, for many individuals, uh, that is the initial presumptive diagnosis or sign that the individual, the problem the individual experiencing is experiencing is Lyme disease. Now, although many individuals uh, afflicted with Lyme disease will develop a bullseye rash, not everyone does. And some of the people who do experience the rash in an area that is not readily visible. Could be the back of the neck, could be on the buttocks or the back of the legs. Uh, so sometimes the rash is there, but is never initially recognized. Just a couple of circumstances, uh, just from personal uh, you know, situations of which I'm aware. I was, um, we were having dinner with some friends in Ocean City, New Jersey, and um, we only saw them about once a year or so. And uh, this woman was updating us uh, with her experience with Lyme disease. She had gotten arthritic and some neurologic manifestations. Uh, in addition to dermatologic, arthritic manifestations, neurologic manifestations, sometimes like uh, facial palsies. Uh, if it uh, is not recognized and continues to worsen, there can be cardiac manifestations. So a wide range of experiences. Well, I had known that she had experienced Lyme disease. Actually, it wasn't until a year after the initial appearance of uh, the dermatologic symptoms that it was actually diagnosed and effectively treated. Now, she is convinced that in that year's time without effective treatment that she experienced some neurologic effects, including some loss of memory. Now, my son, who is a pharmacist physician, had just finished medical school at Temple University, and uh, as part of his medical school training, he was uh, spent six weeks in Bangladesh. Part of his experience was uh, spending a week at a leper colony where they're treating leprosy. Now, leprosy is one of those infections that we'd like to think um, were not too far off from eradicating that infection. But anyway, he had had personal experience in uh, treating and observing leprosy. And the thought occurred to me, Temple University is in the heart of North Philadelphia. Uh, the ticks that transmit this in, uh, Lyme disease are not all that common in the big city environment. It's in the uh, suburbs. It's in the, the fields, the farms, uh, the woods. And I said, Eric, have you ever seen a case of Lyme disease? Because this couple, uh, the woman having experience, was there with, he said, no. Here, here was just graduated from medical school. He'd seen leprosy, but not Lyme disease. And uh, since then, he has seen it uh, often. But Lyme disease, um, another situation. Uh, a friend of ours was experiencing uh, acute neurologic problems. And uh, uh, she'd had all the tests for Lyme and so many other things, and they kept coming back negative. Subsequently, when she was being evaluated with uh, lumbar punctures or spinal taps for, uh, to try to figure out what was happening, it was discovered that she had Lyme meningitis. 
Now, for some reason, the blood tests weren't responding to uh, the development of uh, uh, or identifying antibodies and so forth. But uh, with subsequent an- analysis and evaluation, it was determined that much of her symptomatology was related to, you know, the numbers were off the chart relative to uh, the concentrations of microorganisms in the spinal fluid. So, again, uh, uh, In my area, if there are unusual symptoms that don't seem to have some clear explanation or connection with some other event, uh, one of my first suspicions is Lyme disease, and uh, invariably that will turn out to be the cause of the problem. AIDS, HIV infection human immunodeficiency virus, a killer. And those of you who've had experience of uh, working in sub-Saharan Africa or visiting there uh, can give personal testimony to the consequences of uh, this deadly infection. There are 25 different drugs, antiretroviral drugs, and fortunately, the drugs that have been developed include some that have different mechanisms of action. We started out with the enzyme reverse transcriptase. Uh, its role in the worsening of this viral infection is recognized, uh, an enzyme. So initially, we had reverse transcriptase inhibitors that would block or inhibit the replication of that virus. Subsequently, in the mid-90s, the protease inhibitors were uh, a tremendous advance in uh, making progress. Incidentally, the vast majority of viral infections we cannot cure. In contrast to bacterial infections, there are some bacterial infections, for example, an uncomplicated urinary tract infection or um, uncomplicated gonorrhea can be cured with as little as a single dose of a carefully selected antibacterial agent. With HIV infection, AIDS, what's the prospect? Multiple drug therapy, all of those drugs have the potential for causing adverse events. Multiple drug therapy continuously, sadly, for the lifetime of the patients afflicted. Now, fortunately, with the development of some newer agents, the protease inhibitors, the integrase inhibitor, uh, raltegravir, we have agents that we can put into this cocktail of medications representing uh, several agents acting together to reduce replication of the virus. And by taking that strategy and working through different mechanisms to inhibit replication of viral organisms, we made significant progress. Not in, if we used all 25 drugs together, we would not cure HIV infection. So the important consideration is, can we slow down the replication, the worsening of uh, this infection to the point that we reduce other risks, such as the opportunistic infections that are oftentimes what are the killers in individuals whose immune systems have been suppressed as a result of the HIV virus. Now, the... um, One of the drugs that is part of some of these regimens that are given by mouth is known generically as tenofovir. 
and Viriad is the brand name for that drug. The event that has created the therapy, in terms of treatment considerations, the activity that has uh, created the most excitement or promise relative to the use of this drug is, uh, or AIDS therapy in general, has been the development of a vaginal gel containing tenofovir in a 1% concentration. This could be used by women who are at greatest risk of experiencing AIDS or HIV infection as a consequence of the sexual transmission of that viral organism. Now, the initial results, and I have to emphasize that these are initial results, are promising. And um, what we find is that there are still as many questions as there are data indicating benefit for this infection. But anyway, this is going to be explored further. Not every um, woman was protected who used this uh, microbicidal uh, vaginal gel. Not every woman was protected. Some did develop HIV infection AIDS. That raises several questions. Was the woman compliant in using the vaginal gel each time prior to sexual activity? Was the 1% concentration being used high enough, or should a higher concentration be used? There are also some other questions, but one of the reasons for the enthusiasm is that in many societies, and in some there is uh, just, well, the, the ABC approach, abstinence, be faithful, and condoms that is uh, encouraged by uh, some countries and organizations, and I realize that even that's a, a topic in which there uh, can be some debate because does that message that includes the condoms uh, send a message that uh, sexual activity uh, is, uh, acceptable uh, outside of marriage. So anyway, there are all sorts of issues surrounding that, but uh, there is um, a lot of discussion regarding this particular approach that would provide uh, within the woman's control uh, a means to protect against this potentially deadly infection. Incidentally, just before going on to the um, Next, a viral infection. There was one additional comment I wanted to make about um, Clostridium difficile infection. Some recent reports, well, let me back up a moment. If um, you have a symptom like heartburn, traditional medications, antacids, something like Zantac, Pepsid, but there are, is another class of agents that is now the most widely used for heartburn. Who can name the drug? Pharmacists are excluded from this uh, question. Prilosec, OTC, Prevacid. These are components of uh, a class of drug called proton pump inhibitors. These are the most potent suppressants of gastric acid and can provide great relief of indigestion, heartburn, a variety of gastrointestinal symptoms. I think back to the time when the first of these medications was uh, marketed for prescription use only. The recommendation was don't use it for longer than 14 days because we don't know what effects might result from chronic continuing suppression of gastric acid secretion, of reducing 
acidity within the gut for longer periods of time. Well, uh, and the other consideration was, in certain animal studies, there were reports of some cancers developing in the gastrointestinal tract. Might humans be at the same risk? Well, we didn't know. Some would say we still don't know. But Prilosec started being used to the extent that it was not just for 14 days. It was for months. Months became years for some individuals. A good friend of mine is an emergency room nurse. She said, so many of my colleagues, including myself, use Prilosec. We refer to it as vitamin P. Because, uh, you know, the stress of our jobs, uh, you know, this is just something that we find provides uh, relief and protection against those gastrointestinal symptoms that we would otherwise be experiencing. And, uh, but anyway, the question that has now emerged, there are some data that suggest long-term use of proton pump inhibitors like Prilosec and Prevacid, the safety of which has been considered to be so good that those products are now available without a prescription, don't require a prescription any longer. The implication is that individuals using those medications on a chronic basis are more vulnerable to infection caused by Clostridium difficile. We talked about that earlier as antibiotic-associated. Now some would suggest we can add the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors, as a risk factor or chronic use as a risk factor for the development of uh, uh, Clostridium difficile infection. Okay, back to uh, we talked about AIDS. The other viral infection that I mentioned is uh, hepatitis C. Hepatitis C is not as threatening as virulent as hepatitis B, but nevertheless, it can be deadly. Um, four to five million Americans uh, experience hepatitis C infection. Not necessarily an active symptomatic infection, but it's in their system. And um, anyway, there are some medications, uh, the interferons, um, uh, along with ribavirin. That's sort of the standard treatment. There are several agents microbiologically described as protease inhibitors that have been identified in investigational studies to be more effective against the hepatitis C virus than therapies available to date. Just to toss, don't expect to remember Teleprevir, Boseprevir, there's sort of a ring to those names. Whenever you see the VIR suffix on a, a drug name, uh, you know, pretty good bet that that's an antiviral drug. In clinical studies, uh, these agents hold great promise, and some of the giants of the pharmaceutical industry, like Johnson & Johnson and Merck, are the companies that are developing these agents, and uh, we can expect uh, some more good news. They'll probably be added to the therapies that are already being used with the hope that a combination of antiviral medications attacking the hepatitis C virus by um, different mechanisms will be successful. Now, earlier I made the comment that we don't cure viral infections. Now, 
Some would dispute that and say, well, the colds caused by rhinoviruses or influenza caused by uh, influenza virus, that we do get over those, and, uh, you know, that that is true. But the more active, the more serious, uh, not that influenza is not serious, but uh, most viral infections, though we never completely eradicate the viral organisms from the body. One of the best examples of that that I can provide is uh, varicella zoster virus, VZV. Now, probably many of uh, the younger people here received vaccinations against chickenpox. But for individuals, uh, hardly anybody here as old as I am. But anyway, for uh, <laughs> thanks, Wabi. Uh, uh, for for us and for many of the uh, older adults here. Um, we experienced chickenpox as kids, varicella zoster virus. And um, we itched and we scratched for five days or a week, but we got over it. And then didn't have many reasons to think about that virus again. But unfortunately, as individuals get into their 60s and beyond, that same virus, which has stayed dormant in our system for years and years, returns with a vengeance, but now we call it shingles or herpes zoster. We've never cured that infection, even though we got past the chickenpox. Shingles has been described as the most painful infection one can experience. A good friend of ours uh, experienced cancer, was treated with the immunosuppressive drugs, and uh, um, unfortunately, she passed away as a result of the complications of cancer. But one of the complications that she encountered was the occurrence of shingles. And while that was an active infection, she forgot about the cancer. It was the shingles that were causing the symptoms that were just so disturbing and painful for her. Malaria, plasmodium, several species, Falciparum is the most virulent, and um, we've uh, got information on the handout about one of the new products that is available in this country, even though the primary active ingredient has been uh, used in uh, many countries for, for years. We'll come back to that in a moment. Um, but uh, malaria, um, the artemisinins, which are used in so many parts of the world, have been effective agents for treating malaria infections. Malaria um, is uh, the most common parasitic infection. Um, the medications that are available provide considerable benefit uh, for individuals traveling to areas of the world in which malaria is endemic. Uh, certainly the prophylaxis, the attention to that, is very important. There have been recent reports about some investigational agents that the company Novartis is developing. Spiroindolones is the general designation for several agents that are identified by numbers and letters as they work their way through the investigational study process. But the good news is that there are some areas, uh, are some medications under development that offer promise for more effective treatment of malaria. 
I wish I could say that there has been substantial progress in the development of a vaccine against malaria. Uh, there hasn't been much progress, even though there's been a lot of money put by, uh, forth by uh, pharmaceutical companies, Gates Foundation, and so forth. Uh, worms, just um, intestinal worms are certainly one of the huge um, challenges. Um, couple of observations. Uh, GlaxoSmithKline has just expanded their uh, uh, commitment to the provision of albendazole free of charge. Uh, I think they're investing an additional $19 million a year in making uh, albendazole the, one of the most effective agents for the treatment of intestinal worms avail available to many countries. Um, Interestingly, and just one of the sidebars of uh, some of the observations regarding agents that have used, been used for infectious diseases, um, title of this, Parasite Killers May Work in Prostate Cancer, Albendazole, you know, one use we think of, the worms. Some studies suggest that the mechanisms through which this, this agent exhibits may be of value in slowing down the replication of the tumor cells in individuals with prostate cancer. Stay tuned on that one, and uh, you know, that's certainly very far-fetched from the topic at hand here. Um, okay, uh, we've devoted most of our time uh, to the considerations regarding infections and some of the things that we should uh, keep alert for. One of the challenges is that resistance is developing with increasing frequency to antimicrobial agents available today. Now, one, uh, there, there have been identified what have been referred to as superbugs. The bugs, uh, the names of the bugs sound the same and indeed are the same, but strains have developed that have acquired the capacity to resist the antibiotics that have been available. NDM1, designated as the New Delhi Metallobeta-Lactamase 1. Now, that designation in and of itself has uh, created some controversy because the citizens of New Delhi are uh, adamantly contending that their city is not the source of this uh, resistant strain. Indeed, the strain that is designated as NDM1 was identified and isolated in England in individuals who had had surgery performed in India and Pakistan. And uh, anyway, uh, there is a substantial body of evidence now that this particular enzyme did have its origin in New Delhi, but you know that it, we, we can get caught up in you know all sorts of debate about terminology or whatever. I mean, pick your own name for that if you don't like the New Delhi. Uh, uh, if you feel that's a bad rap, but anyway, metallobeta-lactamase. There are several important classes of antibiotics designated as beta-lactams: penicillins, cephalosporins, carbapenems like imipenem. Imipenem, I recall when that was still in clinical studies, it was called gorillamycin. 
because it had such high activity against a broad spectrum of bacteria, it was easier to list the bacteria that were not susceptible. It was a much shorter list than the bacteria that are susceptible to imipenem. But beta-lactamase, this has, initially, it was just against the penicillins, that these beta-lactamase enzymes broke the ring of the nucleus of the molecule and rendered those penicillins inactive. And then it spread the cephalosporins, and now the carbapenems, indeed the next one, KPC, uh, not to be confused with KFC, uh, but uh, Klebsiella pneumoniae, carbapenemase. The most, among the most potent antibacterial agents, imipenem, meropenem, ertapenem, uh, this enzyme splits that beta-lactam ring. So these are some of the resistant strains. Uh, this KPC has become identified with increasing frequency in the United States. With the NDM1, I think there have only been three reports of the appearance or the identification of that strain of, um, uh, en- or that type of enzyme. New antimicrobial agents. Um, Let me uh, just uh, comment briefly on these. And uh, actually, most of the handout uh, represents uh, background on these agents. Televancin, marketed in late 2009. Uh, I encourage my students, look for clues in a generic drug name. In this case, it's in the middle, V-A-N-C. This new drug is most similar to vancomycin been around for years, often considered to be the safety net for the treatment of serious infections caused by gram-positive bacteria like staphylococci, streptococci, and enterococci. Now, um, when I write and uh, speak about new drugs, I've developed a rating system on a scale of one to five, with five being the best. I've given this a rating of three. There are advantages and disadvantages I identify there, but everything considered, I'm glad to have it available, but it is not, let's say, a drug of first choice. The other agent, artemithrolumafantrine. I referred earlier to the artemisinins, uh, originally isolated in China, been widely used throughout the world for the treatment of uh, malaria. But the artemisinins tend to have a shorter duration of action, and therefore they are almost always used in combinations with other agents, in this case, lumafantrine. Lumafantrine continues the uh, action. This drug has been evaluated and approved in the United States for the treatment of malaria. It is not used, at least presently, for prophylaxis against malaria. I've given this a rating of four. Now, the other end, one other agent, ceftaroline. Ceftaroline, that generic designation, suggests that this is the newest, uh, some call it a fifth generation cephalosporin. It was just approved by the FDA, will not be available in this country until early 2011. Its claim to fame is activity against methicillin-resistant staphylococci. Now, the importance of that is that this is the first cephalosporin to have that activity. In general, cephalosporins and penicillins, as long as individuals aren't allergic to them, are about the safest antibiotics we can use. We've run out of time before I've run out of things to say. Thanks very much for coming.